What world are you living for? Our modern culture preaches to us that this life is enough, that medical science will discover the fountain of youth, that the new technology will bring the dawning of a new age, and through education we can make sure that all children go up to be good and productive. The message hits us from all sides, and many believe it. But is it the truth? This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to opening the Bible to discover for ourselves what it has to say about God, about ourselves, about our world, and about where history will end. As our study leader, Dave Wurtson, introduces today's study from Revelation chapter 14, verses 3 to 13, he introduces us to George, a man you will probably meet today. Maybe you are a lot like George. Let's join Dave and his church family for a message titled, Truth or Consequences. Periodically, George would put a few dollars in, and man, he figured, of course, you know, I'm really ministering to the cause, and I'm giving of my money, and i am really got this God thing down. George was a good old boy. He realized that in the Texas culture, it was kind of good to go to a church. And as you connect with people, it opened up some good friendships. It opened up some good opportunities to be able to even make a few bucks during the week. So church was really a good thing. When George went to work Monday morning, if business demanded stretching the truth a little bit, for example, if it was a difference between really making a big sale or not getting the sale, George thought nothing of just stretching it out a little bit so he could make those big bucks. After all, this was the dog-eat-dog world of business. Everybody did it. If a beautiful legs happened to be walking by him, George thought nothing of just having those eyes just gravitate towards those beautiful legs. Man, if you just did it on the inside and it didn't get on the outside, and you didn't risk a sexual harassment charge, everybody did it. That's the way the world works. George, if you put his commitment to God on a scale of 1 to 10, George was about a 2. His commitment to money, man, it would be a 10. George was a man that really, in the bottom line of his heart, he really used God and he tried to, you know, kind of cover his base with God. But in reality, George lived for money. He lived for what money could do. He lived for this present life. He loved to think about going to Vegas. He loved to think about taking vacations over to Hawaii and maybe even going to the Far East and seeing some of that. He loved this life and that's what he lived for. And he loved the pleasures of it. And God was kind of an addendum on his life. Maybe George is like some of us. Maybe George is really what you're like. And I want you to think, on a scale of 1 to 10, where does God fit into your priorities? You see, there's another group of people we're going to be introduced to during the tribulation period. We open up our Bibles today to Revelation chapter 14. The setting in life is the final seven years before Jesus Christ comes, not for his bride, but to set up his kingdom on earth. You see, the Bible tells it that there's going to come a time when Jesus will be visible again on planet Earth. There will be no debating then who's in control, no debating who's the King of Kings. Jesus will be in Jerusalem, literally ruling the universe and in an incredible kingdom that we're going to close the book of Revelation with. During those seven years of tribulation, things really divide before he comes. 
There's one group of people that are like George. In other words, during the tribulation period, as the heat is turned on, their true commitments of their heart come out. And so a man like George, during the tribulation period, will swear allegiance to a great Western intellectual. He will write editorials. If, if it were to happen today, he would write editorials in the uh, New York Times. He would be writing for the Harvard Review. He would be one of the leading intellectuals of our day. Washington, D.C. would ask this great Western leaders to give talks in Congress about the economy and about, about disarmament and all kinds of things. And all of your friends that aren't really connected with the true Jesus would be saying, Wow, this is incredible. This is wonderful. We're finally getting our act together on this planet. And look at the unity that's flowing from that. But it will be built on the worship of man. It'll be built on the worship of life as we know it today. But there's going to be another group. And that's the group that we've been talking about. There's going to be a group that is spearheaded by 144,000 Jewish men that have come to know that Yeshua the first century Jesus that was born in Bethlehem was their Messiah. And they're going to turn on to this, just like many Jews for Jesus and other many, many Jews across the world today have started to believe in their hearts. And you read about Israel. You can read about Israelis. I just had a word from a pastor, Menno. When Menno talks about many Israelis, even behind closed doors who deep in their heart are responding to Yeshua as the Messiah, as their Messiah, because that's the wonder of this Jesus. He keeps penetrating into hearts. So the group of believers during the tribulation period are going to be spearheaded by these 144,000. They're going to generate fruit. We're going to learn about that today. Their lives and their message and their truthfulness and their integrity are going to generate thousands of people that we were introduced to in Revelation 7 that respond to the Savior. And yet, we're going to find that tremendous opposition is mounted against this 144,000. And those that begin to respond to Christ through them. And the world begins to divide. As we study the book of Revelation, one of the things I want you to do with my brothers and sisters is just don't put this into the tribulation period. Because these scenarios are being acted out this week in your life. This week, you're going to decide whether you're going to be like George, kind of on a two with God, or whether you're going to be like the 144,000 on a ten with God. And I want you to see in our passage, as the Apostle John lays out for that, he puts out for us the different destinies that you're going to have. This is serious business. As you sit in your seat, you are headed somewhere. You are moving somewhere. Something's happening in your life. You're committed to something. And you really know what's at the core of your being, who you really believe in. And that's very important. Because if you believe in just this present system, if you live for just this present world order, if you live for just what materialism and all this stuff can do, you're not going to make it. We're going to find out today that, man, you're headed for eternity away from God. That's serious stuff. Look at Matthew chapter 14, and we'll go on in Matthew 14 verse 3 by looking at the characteristics of a person that's fully devoted to Jesus Christ. What does it mean? What does it look like in real life to be fully committed to Jesus Christ? And we'll pick it up in verse 3 with the songs that this redeemed group are now singing in heaven. They've come through the tribulation period. Many of them have been martyred by the Antichrist, and now they're singing in verse 3, and they sang a new song. 
They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn this song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And I explained to you last time we were together that the reason no one else could learn their song is that no one else could experience the life walk with Jesus that this 144,000 had with their Redeemer, with their Lamb, with Jesus Christ. Don't feel excluded because there should be new songs that only you can sing. I want every one of you to realize that Jesus wants to create a song in your life. My dad was speaking one day about yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday, Jesus died for us. Today, Jesus is alive for us. Tomorrow, Jesus is coming back for us. Oh, friend, do you know him? And those words, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and oh, friend, I want Jesus to come into the lives of those that don't know him, that just blew in my, in my brother's heart, just grabbed his heart. He sat down and penned the words, to yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the church sang that. Isn't that wondrous? That we can have our song, our experience of what the victory and the glory and the intimacy that Jesus has brought to us. So this incredible group is now singing their song, not just here on earth, but they're now singing it before millions upon millions of angels. And none of the angels can really sing the song with quite the fervor, with quite the gusto, because they didn't go through the tribulation with their Lord. But this group has. Now, what are they like? What are these committed followers of Jesus really like? Look what it says. In verse 4, it says this. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men. They were redeemed from among men. And they're now offered as a sacrificial offering, first fruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, this is one of the passages we look at these fundamental qualities of a fully devoted, committed follower of Jesus. You can see how down through the centuries, how believers could get confused about what it really means to follow Jesus. Down through the centuries, many believers have heard the call of Christ in their life, and they have believed that to follow Christ, it meant you couldn't get married. If you were a woman, you could never have intercourse with a man in marriage. If you were a man, you could never have intercourse with a woman. Because what Revelation 14 says right here is these that are really pure, these that are really committed to the Lord, didn't defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. And this is one of the reasons why feminists will attack Christianity. Because notice it says they did not defile themselves with women. If you're a woman in this audience, what does that say about you? If connection with you, if closeness with you somehow defiles me, then what does that make you? You are unclean. You see why in the university of campuses across the land, how people can feel, man, we need to chuck this old time religion. We need to chuck this religious stuff. All it does is produce oppression. Some of you ladies, deep in your heart, when I'm speaking to you, there's a kind of a residual, boy, I'm not sure I can trust this stuff. Because, man, as I think about being raised, there were so many subtle ways in which I was put down. So many subtle ways in which I was made to feel like I'm not fully what God intended me to be. And and only men can really be what God wants them to be. What a lie that is. What this verse is saying is that they did not defile themselves with women. They kept themselves pure. As we open up the the Bible, we we realize, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, which is one of the 
basic passages that's used to talk about celibacy. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul said that he wished that all men, and he would imply all women, were as I am, unmarried. And yet, and he says in the passage, and if you can do this, this is good. So people connect 1 Corinthians 7 with Revelation chapter 14, and that's how celibacy began to evolve in the Christian church. That's why when you study church history, you find out about priests who are single, never unite with a woman in marriage, and why you have nuns who never unite in marriage, because somehow you can be more fully devoted to Jesus if you're single. What people fail to read in 1 Corinthians 7 is the balance of 1 Corinthians 7. First of all, the setting is this. The Corinthian church is facing intense persecution. At any moment in their gatherings, soldiers can bust in and people can be taken away and martyred right on the spot. They were moving into a time where that persecution was intensified. The man who wrote 1 Corinthians 7 ended up having his head cut off in Rome. It was serious. It was a a very difficult time of crisis. Now you ask me, or you tell me, is it better to have a wife and kids that are left behind or to leave a husband behind with all of the kids in a time of persecution like that? Or is it better under that kind of incredible crisis to stay single? The course of wisdom is It might be a practical, wise thing. And it might save some real difficult things in life, especially in a time where you don't have parachute clauses and insurance and everything else. It might be better just now because our lives are at stake. It's like a time of war to stay single. The Apostle Paul was also telling all of you that are single, and we tease a lot about this, but I want us as a church family, I want to teach you very carefully, honor single people. 1 Corinthians 7 does tell us that a single person has more time to be devoted to the things of God. Many single people can open their hearts to many other people's kids. Like in our area, there's hundreds of kids who don't have moms and dads that are there. And sometimes a single man or a single woman can have a great big family of kids. Some of you are school teachers. And some of you, one of the great burdens of your school teaching is you are now becoming a surrogate parent for not just your own kids, but for a lot of kids. And if you're single, you have all this time to devote to that. We need to honor that as a church family. The Bible's not saying, like unlike Judaism, for example, that if you were single, man, every woman in the group would work hard in a Jewish synagogue to get a single man married. The worst thing that could happen in Judaism was not to be married. But Jesus said in Matthew that eunuchs are accepted into the kingdom of God, that they can fully walk into the holy place and worship the Lord. You don't know how delivering that was for people that were single. Jesus took away that stigma against a single person. And I want to remind you, the church family, honor our single people, bless them, encourage them. Don't always be trying to to unite them and team them up. Maybe the Lord doesn't have that as their life plan. So there is a place for singleness in the body of Christ, but not for celibacy in the sense of that this is more holy and that this is where we get closer to God. Because right in the chapter, the Lord uh, Lord Jesus led the Apostle Paul, right in the chapter where he says, I wish everybody was like me, he also says, if it's better to marry than to burn. That was my life verse when I was 18 years of age. 
It's better to marry. In other words, if the Lord built you, when I met Mary, I knew I wasn't built to be a eunuch. I knew I wasn't built to be a celibate. And that's just as holy. Paul says everyone has his gift. Paul says every one of us has intimacy with the Lord. And the Lord's going to express it in certain ways. And even at the, at the closest first Corinthians 7, he says, if you can't keep the girl that you're committed to, if you find tremendous passion dwelling in your life, Paul says, by all means, marry her. He says, marry in the Lord. Be sure that she's a believer. Be sure that he's a believer. But please marry in the Lord, even under these times of great distress. People also forget that the great Apostle Paul that wrote 1 Corinthians 7 also wrote Ephesians chapter 5. And he's the one that took marriage to the highest level that it's ever been taken and ever will be taken, where he told us that our marriages actually are a dramatic, a holy drama of the relationship that Christ has with us as his children. So every one of you that are married today in Christ, as you go out into the world, do you realize that one of your biggest witnesses, one of your biggest testimonies is just your life together as husband and wife? And the love that Jesus gives you for one another, that's one of the greatest outreaches that you have. As you live out the drama, as the wife acts the role of the church, and as the husband acts out the role of Christ, Paul's the one that talked like that. And he is the one that concluded Ephesians 5 by saying, Therefore, let a man leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So you see the balance of Scripture. Revelation chapter 14 would totally contradict major portions of God's revelation in the New Testament if it's saying that somehow these men would have been defiled if they would have united with women. In fact, Hebrews 13.4 says, Marital intercourse is honorable in all things. The marriage bed is totally pure. It's undefiled. Therefore, God will judge those who have sex outside of marriage and those who commit adultery within marriage because it was because of the sacredness of marriage and the sacredness of sex in marriage, not because somehow sex was a bad thing. Now, I want to really underscore that in your mind because deep in your souls, many of you are committed to the reality. Sex is a lot of fun, but it's bad. A lot of groups that I speak to, the emotion of the American body of believers today is just like the old country song that I'm getting so old, people can't even remember it. It's you kiss an angel good morning and you love her like the devil when the sun goes down. In other words, in the morning you wake up and there's going to be no sex because you're going to be you know, in public and you're going to live just out like normal people. And so she's an angel then in the morning as you're going to go out into the world where you're not going to be doing this thing called sex. But man, when the lights go out at night, you know, that's when it really happens. And that's when there's passion. And that's when there's fire. And that's when you really feel alive. But that's the devil's thing. That is a lie from the deepest, darkest realm of hell. And that has spoiled some of your life. It's kept some of you from really in your marriages being able to experience the passion and the love and the joy and the release that God wants you to have. God, your heavenly daddy, created sex and marriage. He loves it. It's his beautiful reminder, the relationship of unity and intimacy that the church had with his son. He even uses it in Hosea chapter 2 as a foretaste of eternity. Whenever a married couple makes love and the tremendous exhilaration of that experience, you know what you're getting? You're getting a foretaste that it's not going to end up in hell. Life's not going to end up in dust and ashes. 
That there's a great creator that is so fun and so full of life that he even made our propagation of, of the species much more than that. He made it an incredible, intimate experience that gives us a touch of the pleasure that Jesus will have for you forevermore. Do you believe that about your heavenly daddy? It's so important to believe that religion, religion, I don't care whether it's Protestant religion or Roman Catholic religion or, or uh, Mormon religion or whatever you might have, religion will always attack you ladies. And it will always attack men and women in their marriages uniting together beautifully. And there have been believers just like yourself who have been bound thinking that Revelation 14 was saying, if you're really holy, you're going to be celibate. Never enjoy sex. But think about the book of Revelation. When Jesus was speaking to the churches, he used sexual relationship as a symbol. He used it as a symbol of where our devotion lies. He used it, for example, I remember he warned the church against Jezebel, and Jezebel is the art symbol of an idolatrous, immoral leader that sucked Israel into the worship of the Baals. And John used that powerful symbolism from the Old Testament to warn us against a divided heart. He warned us against lusting after and have passion towards those that God doesn't desire for us. You see, sex and marriage is a very beautiful thing. But for example, if I say, well, Mary, I really enjoy you in our marriage, but I'd like to enjoy a lot of other people. How long do you want me to be your pastor if I'm teaching you like that? Like I'm 85% devoted to Mary. But I like to mess around 15% of the time with some other ladies, too. See, that doesn't fly. And that's why God used it as a powerful motivation. God wants every one of you to be 100% devoted to Jesus Christ. Jesus wants 100% devotion to the Lord. And in the book of Revelation, that's what it means to be pure. That's what it means not to defile yourself with women. Women, right here in this context, it's not speaking about every one of you individual ladies. It's speaking symbolically of the woman Babylon. This harlot, this materialistic system. It's powerful imagery. In the book of Revelation, there's this horrible woman like Jezebel of old. She represents the old kingdom of Babylon, which was the worship of life as we know it now. It was the worship of pride. It was the worship of money. It was this incredible seductive influence that just like illicit sex pulls us in and tries to get us to to enjoy things that God doesn't intend for us to desire. And what it's saying in this context that these 144,000 Jewish evangelists did not get seduced by the woman Babylon. They were totally pure. They didn't listen to Jezebel, to the Jezebel of their time. And so John would say to you today, if you want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, it means that you are, first of all, pure and wholehearted in your vertical relationship with Jesus. You are 100% devoted to him. That generates a sexual purity in your life. These men were not accused of having somebody else and of lusting after somebody else. They were not people that spoke out of both sides of their life. Aren't you hungry for those kind of people? Some of you are saying, well, David, I've really blown it and you talk about George and, and man, my eyes wander after those skirts and man, I don't do anything about it. I've just developed a whole habit where that's what I'm doing. Husbands, do you realize how that destroys your wife when you do that? And I want to just tell you from the depths of my heart, men and women, both of you, when you seek to enjoy what God has not given you, You are not walking into heaven. 
You're walking into hell. And it's all around you. I know it is. And it's so important for all of us to realize we need to be devoted to Jesus. And if you're really devoted to Jesus, he'll generate meaning and fulfillment and purity in your marriages. He'll make your eyes so that they're able to be under control. He'll keep you from those subtle times of temptation. Jesus can do it. Amen? Do you believe that? So we need to not just realize, well, there's going to be these really morally pure, consistent, fully devoted followers that really have their act together. They're fully devoted to God. They are 100% devoted to Him. That's going to happen in the tribulation period. I want it to happen now with you. Look at the second character, the first characteristic of these men. And we would add together, for us as the body of Christ today, with you ladies, I want you to ask yourself, man, am I on a 10 in my full devotion to purity, Purity morally in my commitment towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, towards people that I meet, and fully attend in my purity of devotion to Jesus. Look at the second thing it says about these men. It's a beautiful characteristic. It says they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Isn't that a beautiful expression of disciple? Where are you going to go today? Where are you going to go today? That's a good question for me to ask myself. These 144,000, wherever the Lamb wanted to go, That's where they went. When you get up in the morning, who do you think controls your hands? What do you do with your hands? Who controls your feet? Where do you decide where are you going to go with your feet? These 144,000 acted for us the basic reality of discipleship. When Jesus said, Peter, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter couldn't say, well, today, Lord, I've got some other plans. Today, Lord, I thought I'd go up and take a picnic up at Mount Hermon. I know you want to be down preaching in Judea, but I'm just kind of tired. I think I'm going to go up there. What do you think Jesus would have said to Peter? He would have said, Peter, follow me. You need to be where I'm at. You need to be doing what I want to be doing. That's one of the biggest decisions you're going to make in your life. A bunch of you today sitting before me. Sure, you're into this Jesus thing, but when it comes to really following Jesus in everyday life, you're out of here. And I want to share with you, that's the most miserable kind of relationship with Jesus that you can ever have. Man, it is push and pull because he loves you so much, he keeps coming after you. And you keep, just be honest, when you're not with Jesus, what happens to your life? When we don't go where Jesus wants us to go, I mean, we can stop right now. Let's have testimonies. Times when I wasn't where Jesus wanted me to be. Aren't those incredible testimonies of victory and happiness and joy? Man, they're awful times. It's just a simple thing. You can decide in your heart, these legs don't belong to me anymore. They belong to Jesus. These eyes don't belong to me anymore. They belong to Jesus. These hands don't belong to me anymore. They belong to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus wherever he wants me to go. Some of you have just come to know Jesus as your Savior, and I want you to know with all of my heart that you can become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. You can decide, that's the direction I'm going to go in. I'm going to go with him wherever he wants me to go. The way you find out where he wants you to go is you read this book, and you'll hear his voice as you open up this book in the morning, and you really just try it. You'll like it. Say, Lord Jesus, I really need some guidance today. I need some help today. Teach me something about yourself today. Teach me something I'm going to need today. Lord, as I go out into my relationships in the business world today, Lord, help me. I've got to make some sales today. Or man, like Don going out in emergency calls. Lord, it's hard for me to handle the pressure of these emergency calls. But as I go out, and as that siren goes, and as I go out to meet people's needs, I want, to, I want Jesus, I want you to go before me. 
Don't you think that makes a difference for a, for a, a, a medic that's facing all that pressure, or a fireman or a policeman? Don't you think that makes an incredible difference in their life? I want you to enjoy that. You see, this following Jesus is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a loving thing that Jesus is doing for us. So number one, these men were committed to sexual purity in, in their relationships with God, in the sexual area with, their, with wives and husbands. They followed the Lord wherever he went. Look at the third characteristic. It says, they followed the Lord wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The third characteristic is what I've kind of been alluding to is they offered themselves as a sacrifice to God. But I want you to focus on that they were, they were purchased by Jesus. This is the idea of redemption. They were purchased by Jesus. And then it says they were offered to God as first fruits. You say, Dave, what does it mean to be a first fruit? Well, like for Kim as a farmer, when the wheat starts to mature, and this year we don't know what we'll ever do that. If we don't get any rain, it's not going to. But in a normal year, when it rains right and it comes in good, the first fruit is the first wheat that matures. And it's a foretaste of the great harvest. Like when Kim had a really good harvest, Jonathan and Joel were helping him then, and they would get all excited and could hardly wait till Kim got the combine really, you know, cranking so they could go out there. That was really a blast to take this old combine and go out there and harvest the wheat. Well, the first fruit is the very first wheat that matures. And in old Israel, the Lord would make them take that first fruit of the wheat, the first uh, foretaste of the harvest, and they would gather together and they would go to the temple and they would offer to God. Why would they do that? Because they would be, by taking that thanksgiving offering to God, the first fruit offering, they would be saying, God, we know that all the harvest is yours. And Lord, we just want to thank you that because we had this first fruit, we know that now there's going to be an abundant harvest. And Lord, we just want to thank you for that. And we want you to realize that as your children and as your kids, you provided for us so good. And we want you to know that we're excited about that. God made all the families in Israel. Every one of the firstborn in Israel was a first fruit. Remember the Passover where they put the blood in the door and God passed over and the firstborn was not taken away? The Lord said that the firstborn belongs to me. Now in Israel, the Lord let the whole tribe of Israel be the first fruit offering to God. And they redeemed by their offering to God all the firstborn son and then all of Israel. Now what was the Lord saying by that? When a parent would bring his firstborn, their, their firstborn son, like Hannah brought Samuel, She would be saying, Lord, you own all of my kids. And I look forward to what you're going to do in our family. And I just take my firstborn son and I give him completely to you. The first fruit is always representative of someone who's saying, I'm completely devoted to the Lord. It all belongs to him. And I also look forward to the fruitfulness that's coming. See, one of the things I want you to realize during the tribulation period, these 144,000 were optimistic. They were incurably optimistic group, a group. You say, Dave, how in the world could these 144,000 be optimistic during the tribulation period? How could they ever be excited about what, what was happening then? Man, they were being martyred. They had Antichrist ruling the world. The false prophets lying to people. How could they ever be excited? Because they still knew the power of the gospel. Remember, we've learned during the tribulation period, unlike some of the way that some of you are taught. Some of you have heard messages. Man, you need to believe in Jesus today because you'll never get a chance during the tribulation period. And I will tell you, believe in Jesus today. Don't risk it. But it's okay 
to realize that the book of Revelation teaches there's going to be a gigantic ingathering during the tribulation period. As we go on in this passage, we're going to find out that there's an eternal gospel that's declared by the host of heaven to all the world. You see, God is not willing that any should perish. It is a lie of Satan to think that God you know, has just a very few that are going to believe in and only a very few are going to come to him. Yes, the Lord has, that it's a narrow door. But man, there's a lot of people that can walk through a narrow door if they get lined up right. Jesus is still saying, God loves the world. First Peter is still saying, God is not willing that any should perish. He's long-suffering. He's gentle. The reason these 144,000 saw themselves as first fruits is they realized that their commitment to Jesus was going to open up the door and through their witness and through their life, even through their martyrdom, even through their life before it happened, because I'm using their life that hasn't happened yet to be a motivation for us as the body of Christ today. So Jesus is even using these 144,000 before they're present on earth. Isn't that incredible? To motivate us and to encourage us. It shows the heart of God. You know, some of you are, are old Midlothianites. In fact, some of you just moved here and you're already old Midlothianites. I even had a guy last night, he just moved out here. He said, We need to shut the gate. <laughs> I want you to listen to me. This is really serious. Because the attitude, the pulse beat of you, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, the second someone new walked in this door, the pulse beat of your heart, not my heart necessarily. I mean, I could stand in my head here Sunday morning. If your heart is, bolt the gate. We don't have any more room. No more relationship room in our life. One of the things that's been gripping our leaders, new people coming to our church family. You know, they're not looking for friendliness. Do you realize that? You can smile at them in the foyer, give them cards at the greeting center. You know, new people aren't looking for friendliness. You know what they're looking for? They're looking for friends. And I want to share with you from the depth of my heart, if you believe that if you have Jesus in your life, your sins are washed away, you're confident that you have a home in heaven. Pat just joined our church. His mom just passed away early this morning. Bob and I were up at the hospital last night Many of his extended family have never had a church family like this. This is the first time in Pat's life he's ever had a family like you. It's the first time in his life he ever could call and say, can my pastors come up? My mom's dying. I don't know what to do. And we gathered together right there in Charlton. And Bob just knew. He said, I'm new at this. Let's just pray. My family, they thought the priest should come, but that's kind of a downer because that means it's the last rites and... I said, no, let's call. I've got a pastor. First time in life he could ever say that. You see how Jesus is trying to open up those lines of relationships. Think about how you came to know the Lord. The first fruits. Pat is a first fruit in his family, I believe. And what the Lord Jesus is saying, man, I've got a heart that this whole family will come to know Christ. I want you to get really serious about this. You know what? When you get to be about 75, you're going to want to get rid of your two horses. You'll probably do that when you're 55. You're going to want to get downsides. You get your kids out of your house, you're going to say, man, I'm tired of taking care of all this big space. That space is not going to make a bit of difference. What you think is the American dream, having this big house, being out all by myself in the middle of the woods, man, that's what it's all about. Please listen to me. You know what it's all about? Investing your life in new people. 
and old people and developing friendships, but always being open to those friendships for new members that Jesus wants to give birth to in the body of Christ. And I think the Lord Jesus is going to hold us accountable. We need to stop saying, oh man, I don't want it to be like this and it's growing and everything else. Jesus is saying, I am giving you, I have nurtured you. I have taught you God's word. A lot of you know so much in your heads. He's saying, now's the time. This is a challenging time. I want to explode just like I've done periodically throughout church history. You're just the first fruits of a gigantic harvest that I want to bring into this area. You realize that you're the only group of people, the body of Christ in this town is the only group that can take a teenager that's fully committed to taking drugs, fully committed to sexual impurity, fully committed to disobeying and rebelling against his teachers. You're the only group in town that can have a savior come into their life and they can become radically new, radically changed. Do you believe that? You're the one that if a kid wanders away, some of you have teenagers that are wandering away, you're the group that has brothers and sisters around that can get really serious and can pray for that wandering kid. And over time, the hound of heaven can pull them back in the intimacy with Jesus. You think that can happen? How many of you came to know Christ in your older years? Like in your, you know, when you're in mid-age, many of you. You didn't know anything about it, and you never really got it all together, and then the Lord touched you. What I want you to realize is we need to believe that we're just the first fruits. And then the last thing it says about these guys, they were, they were truth. They, they were committed to the truth. So there you have it. You want to be a fully devoted follower to Christ? You don't have to be a, a genius to understand it. It says, number one, pure in your devotion to Jesus, pure in sexual relationships. It's time to renew our commitments that way. Second of all, he said, total obedience. The goal of my life is to follow the Lamb, to follow Jesus wherever he goes. My life doesn't belong to me anymore. I've got to follow him. Today, I follow him. Thirdly, I've got a tremendous passion to be a sacrifice. As I sacrifice my life fully to him, then I become a first fruit, and abundant fruit starts to come into God's family because I'm really involved in touching others through my life. And I, I have an open heart. Not a closed heart, but an open heart. I'm not someone that's retreating into isolation, but I'm someone that's reaching out into all the world, not just into the world of Midlothian, but into all the world. And finally, I'm a man and woman of truth. Aren't you so glad that Jesus said, man, I'm not just in heaven, but I'm right here on earth now, and you can follow me. In fact, I'm not even outside your life. I'm inside your life. Aren't you so glad Jesus had a heart to not just save us, but he wanted to save a lot of other people as well? And aren't you glad that unlike so many leaders in our society, Jesus is totally a man of truth? Are you going to be like George? Next week we'll go on and learn about the next group. Look at the next paragraph. It talks about those that aren't like George. Those that fake it, those that live for materialism. And you know what? They end up eternally in hell. One of the biggest reasons why unbelievers think that I don't want to believe in Jesus because it's a horrible thing. How could God send anyone to hell? Next week I'm going to tell you how God can send someone to hell and why. And that's an honest thing. I'm going to tell you why God will send some people to hell and why he doesn't. Revelation 14 is going to tell us. So you can look at that for next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you so much that you want truth. And the consequences of really having a truthful relationship with you is that we're going to live and rejoice and be with you forever and ever. Help us to realize the line that's been drawn in the sand. 
I'd ask you, Lord, that we read this culminating book, this last book of your revelation, where all the streams of Scripture come together. Oh, Lord, you just help us to be able to see the conflict in our light as we go out into the business world this week. Lord, right now, I just pray that men and women would commit themselves to moral purity. Lord, we destroy the harvest. We destroy our witness in the world when we as the body of Christ are not pure in our sexual relationship. I want everyone to realize, Lord, that you are forgiving, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Help some of us that have strayed in this area to ask for cleansing now in that area. Father, as I've been speaking about following the Lamb wherever he went, your Holy Spirit has spoken to some of my brothers and sisters about their half-hearted relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that they'll nail it down in their heart right now, that they'll realize that, and they know it, I know they already know it, that they're only going to go around once in this life. Help them to decide today they're going to follow the Lamb wherever he wants to go. They're going to be fully obedient to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of them. But Father, help us to realize in the body of Christ that there's no room for isolationism. And Lord, as your kids today, we want to just add your spirit to powerfully come upon us. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be men and women of truth. Probably the ultimate lie would be for me to teach this stuff now and now the rest of this week to live different from what I've taught. So help me to be a man of truth. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we wouldn't just speak one way on Sunday morning and something else Sunday afternoon and the rest of the week. Protect us from that hypocrisy. Make us men and women of truth. And now I pray, Lord, that your spirit would bring in the fruit in our lives that only he can generate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.